at our home, we have a, in particular, a certain four-year-old girl who can go nameless. And she, she loves to do these good things. And so she'll, she'll pick up after her brothers or maybe her two-year-old brother. She'll get him clothed and send him outside when it's zero degrees without telling us. And she does all these great things. She'll help clothe them and get them ready after their baths. And she'll come bouncing in the kitchen, you know, or wherever we might be with her pigtails flopping and, and lavish on us all these great tales of things that she's done. And you're, you're kind of impressed, right? And you think she's doing well and she's doing great. And then, and then it comes. Mommy, Daddy... Can I have a treat? <laughs> Do you see all the good things that I've done? And you begin to realize that all of these good things that you do that are perhaps not as good as you, as you think. So it is in our Christian life. We oftentimes have a higher estimation of our own deeds than we ought to have. And in having this higher estimation, of our own deeds, what we end up doing and then is diminishing Christ and His righteousness and His works when we elevate our own. So that's what we're going to be looking at. If you want to turn to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. And as you're turning there, I'll just kind of recant the story again, rehearse of what's been going on in the first several chapters of Matthew. You see that Jesus Christ is born of Abraham, and that he's, he's the one that is bringing forth all of these promises that were given to Abraham in Genesis 12. Jesus Christ is the one who is bringing all of them forth. You also see that, that he's a king like David, and David had his, his dominion and his kingdom. And Jesus Christ, what is he heralding? He's heralding, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he's He's bringing forth the promises of Abraham. He's a king like David, bringing in the true kingdom of heaven. And like Moses, he's also leading the people throughout the wilderness. And as Moses goes up the mountain and gives the people the law, so here is Jesus Christ going up the hillside on the north shores of the Sea of Galilee and giving his people a new law, showing them in this Sermon on the Mount that we're looking at, showing them what the Christian life looks like. What does true discipleship look like? So with that in mind, let us turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, our, our hearts are in anguish right now. In utter anguish. But we have no one else to turn to, God. You have the words of life. And this seems so trivial that we'd be here doing this when there's everything transpiring right now, God. But again, we, we come to you. We have nowhere else to turn, God. So we ask that you would bless us during this time, that your words would come to life, that we would be convicted, that we would see your holiness, that we would drink of your grace. And in you, and in you alone, God, would we be satisfied. Amen. Brief outline of where we're going to be going here. The main idea that we're working under is that you, not as a group, but you individually, you are not as good as you think, but you are more. But you are more righteous than you could imagine. You are not as good as you think, but you are more righteous than you could imagine. So we see in verses 17 and 18, what we're going to see is the fulfillment of the law. Here is Jesus Christ. In Him and Him alone, He is the one that's going to fulfill the law. You and your self-righteousness are not. Verse 19, we're going to be looking at obedience unto the law. And, of course, the immediate context that Jesus Christ is looking at is the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant. But now, today, what are we as Christians? What are we bound to? What are we obligated to? We're going to be looking at that in verse 19. And then finally, in verse 20, we're going to be looking at true righteousness. So main idea, you are not as good as you think. However, praise be to God, you are more righteous than you could ever imagine. We're going to be looking at the fulfillment of the law, obedience into the law, and then finally, true righteousness in verse 20. Number one, fulfillment of the law. I'm going to go back to verses 17 and 18. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now the human heart is continually distorting grace into, into two different camps. Either, either one, we think that the grace of God is not enough, so what do we do? We add our own works on top of the grace of God, as if then that would be enough to bring back to God, as if that would be enough to please God. So that's one way we distort it. The other side is to go, Oh, we have grace of God? Amen. You fully, you fully embrace it and you just live a life of sin. And this is, these are the, this is the fear of those who are opposing Christ in this context, in, in the Sermon on the Mount. They think that he is throwing aside the word of the Lord. And, and look at what he's doing. So when you go to Deuteronomy, and you see who the people are blessed. Who's blessed in Deuteronomy? What's the people who keep the law? 
Deuteronomy 28, it says, all the blessings will come upon you and overtake you if, if, it's conditional, if you obey the Lord our God. So then Jesus should have been saying, blessed are the ones who make tassels on the four corners of their garment in which they cover themselves. And blessed are you when you do not move your neighbor's boundary markers. And blessed are you when you eat the ox and the sheep and the goat, but don't eat the bacon or the pig. And these, these laws, they provide a nice quantifiable list that you're able to check off. And it's, it's nice and it's convenient for that human heart who wants to have works. And then, you think you've got to figure out, but then there's this popular rabbi who's gaining quite the following. And he's leading the people astray with these radical, radical ideas. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. See how this is not conditional at all? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And this teaching that Jesus Christ is giving sends shockwaves through the religious institutions. So in our text, Jesus Christ is answering the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and, he, and their natural reaction. They're saying, you cannot remove the law. Why? The people will abuse your grace and they'll do whatever they want. You have to have some kind of boundaries around the human heart. And that is what the law is for. To keep us from sinning, they would say. So when Christ is pronouncing these blessings to the people that we saw several weeks ago, there's no conditions that we see like in the Mosaic Covenant. So then the assumption that they have is that Christ is abolishing the word of the Lord, that he is abolishing the law, that he is setting it aside. Jesus responds that he is not no, no, no. He's not setting it aside. He's not abolishing it. He's not throwing it aside, but rather he is fulfilling the law. When Christ coming to fulfill the law, we'll look at this in a little bit. Christ coming to fulfill the law, it shows us two different things. One, the law was lacking and it, it needed to be fulfilled. Number two, we're going to see that this fulfillment of the law removes any pretense that self-righteousness is some back alley way or your self-righteousness is some way that you can come back to God. So let's look at this. The law was lacking and needed fulfillment. We see that, one, it was never intended to save. Even in the Old Testament, they weren't saved by obedience unto the law. What does Paul write in the early chapters of Romans and then in Galatians? He says, Abraham believed. Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And sure, Abraham made the sacrifices and he did the circumcision. Yes, Abraham did that, but it was, it was not the means of his salvation. It was an outward expression. 
an outward expression of the belief that was already within his heart. So you see the law, one, it was never intended to save. And two, you see that it's the lesser pointing to the greater, that it was a foreshadow of what was to come. In Hebrews 10.1 it says, the law was only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. So Joe talked about this during the Bible study of how the, the law was pointing to something else. It is Christ. So we, we see that it was not intended to say, that it was looking to something else. Hebrews 10.1 was foreshadowing something else. And then finally, next we're going to see that it only cleans the outside. It, it doesn't remove the guilt from the inside. In Hebrews 9, the author writes, The blood of goats and of bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we might serve a living God? So the law can only make you ceremonially, just on the outside, it can only make you ceremonially clean, but it can't remove the guilt that's within. Now that Christ has come to be the true sacrifice, we have one who will come and not just make you ceremonially clean, but on the inside who will remove the guilt. And we see that in the law, it had to be done over and over and over. Every year they would have the Day of Atonement. Continually you were coming to make sacrifices. Why? Because it wasn't enough. But in Jesus Christ... For by one sacrifice, He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So the law was never intended to be this permanent institution. They knew it was flawed. It needed to be fulfilled. And it was designed to be that way. It wasn't as though it didn't fulfill its purpose. It was intended to point to Christ. It was never a means of salvation. It could only clean the outside, not the inside. So it had to be done continually. But here is Christ who comes and does it once and for all. So we see that the law was lacking, but two, Christ fulfilling the law it removes any pretense that your self-righteousness some back alley way, some way that you can get to God. And it's been said that the moment you come home from being the prodigal son, you have to war, you have to fight against being the older brother. And sure, you, you come home by the grace of God and you... You're done eating pig food and you come home and you see your father and you don't know how he's going to respond and he runs to you and he embraces you and he loves you and there's a day of feasting and a day of thanksgiving. And you're not going to you're not going to go back. 
you're not going to go back here. You're not going to throw it all away. You stay with your father and you, who has welcomed you, and you begin to work, and you begin to think that all that you have is because of all of your work. And then rather than the grace of God who has brought you home to begin with. So, perhaps, you don't see yourself as the older brother, Christian. But do you look down? Do you look down on people? In, in America here, we, we don't we don't have the caste system except for one place in hospitals. In India, when I was living there, you could you could somewhat tell from the dialect, but you knew someone's last name. But if you were there long enough, you knew where they were socially. You knew how much better you were compared to them. All we need to do is look at the color of your scrubs as you walk down the hall. And you know how much better you are than them. When you see them on the sidewalks, when it's freezing, asking for money. You're not like the publican, you're like the Pharisee in Luke 18, and you think, thank God, thank God I am not like one of them. It's this self-righteousness that pervades and creeps into all of these areas of our lives, even if we don't know it. I mean, look at our church as a whole. So we're, we're Baptists, right? So we're, we're, not, we're not Catholics, praise be to God. We're, we're not Lutherans who just never left the Catholic Church far enough. We're not Presbyterians, because they haven't even figured out the Old Covenant yet, and what that means. But we finally arrived. We're Baptist, right? And then even on top of that, we're Reformed as well. <laughs> and there's nothing more arrogant about men when they think they've understood something profound about God. It breeds pride. So you have all of that. And then on top of it, we're typically homeschooling as well. And so it's, it's, quite frankly, we can do it better than anybody else. We can do it better than the public schools. We can do it better than the private schools. We'll do it right in our own homes. So left unchecked, church, a, a place like this becomes a breeding ground for self-righteousness. A breeding ground for self-righteousness. But it is actually the opposite that's supposed to be true. The, the grace of God and the mercy of God should lead, or lead us into a, a place where we abhor ourselves and our sin all the much more. Our sin should be that much more clear to us because we see the grace of God. And as you're daily drinking of this grace of God, you come to a place where you realize you simply have nothing to offer. You have nothing. 
nothing to offer God. And that, my friend, is the safest place to be. So Christ is, has come to fulfill the law, and so there is no need for your self-righteousness. He has fulfilled the standard that all men and women have fallen short of. So you, to be a little more clear, your self-righteousness is of no value whatsoever. It cannot bring anything back to life. Just as the bloods and, and the blood of the goats and the bulls in the Old Testament could only make you outwardly clean and it couldn't remove any of your, your inward guilt, so your self-righteousness, it can only give you the outward appearance of cleanliness. It cannot remove this inward guilt that you have. So, to go back to our intro, even when we are self-righteous, even our motives are oftentimes, oftentimes selfish and impure. You, you clean your neighbor's driveway, but you linger long enough till they make sure you, they see you do it. Or you, you give money to some organization, but you never give it anonymously. Or you bring someone a meal, and before you, you hand it over there, you hand it over to them, you make sure that you let them know how long it took you to procure all the ingredients, to cut them, and to cook all of these fine organic ingredients. And, and once they know that, then you can hand it over. So by default, we are continually leaning, Christian, we're leaning still towards this self-righteousness, but in the end, we have to realize we're not nearly as good as we think. So main idea before we move on, to recap here. Main idea. You, as a group, individually, you are not as good as you think. But, praise be to God, you are more righteous than you could ever imagine. And we see in the verse 17 and 18 that Christ has come to fulfill the law. Thankfully, because we cannot. Even though we strive and we want to do it because we want the glory. We don't want to give the glory to God. But Christ has come not to abolish, but to fulfill the law. Now, as we transition to verse 19, we're going to be looking at what does this true obedience look like? Verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we see in verses 17 and 18, Jesus Christ is saying that he is the one and he will fulfill and he will uphold the law. Verse 19, we see he has that same expectation for his disciples. And immediately as Christians were, were confronted with this and were wondering, what do I do with the law? Does it pass away or does it not? Do we re relax it or not? How does the Christian relate to the law of the Old Testament? It's made quite clearly here that Jesus Christ has not abolished the law, but he has fulfilled it. And we are not to relax the law, but we are to do it and to teach it. But the author of Hebrews says that 
The fact that we have a new covenant has made the first one, that is the law, he's made it obsolete. And then in Galatians 3, Paul writes, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So Paul is writing that the law had its purpose, which was to keep us, to to act as a custodian and to point us to Christ. And now Christ has come. So how do you reconcile these two things? Honestly, they seem contradictory. Jesus here is telling us to keep the law. Paul and the author of Hebrews says that it's obsolete. What do we do? How do we reconcile them? And I think it's imperative that we realize that there, there's two different contexts going on here. We see that Christ is addressing the concerns of his, that his radical understanding of who is blessed will bring the people to forsake good works. That's the concern, is that his teaching will lead the people to forsake these good works. Whereas Paul is addressing people who are saying, no, 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 I can be saved. The grace of God isn't enough. I can be saved through these, through the keeping of the law. And so they're, Paul is telling them that, no, 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 the law can never bring salvation. And as Christ has come, this whole institution has been set aside. So you cannot be saved. So there's two different contexts that, that's going on here. So then, has, has the law been set aside? Yes. Yes. The law has been set aside. Are we to do it and to teach it? Yes. Yes. Yes, we are. So, Go back to this beginning of the verse 19. It says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus here is condemning the the Pharisees where outwardly they're keeping the law, but inwardly they have not kept one of the prescribed commandments of God. Yet he makes it clear that we are to do these and we are to teach the law and that those ones will actually be great in the kingdom of heaven. So how do we do it? How do we, how do, we do this? Going back to our verse 17, we see, just to rehearse it again, Christ has come and he has fulfilled the law, and the law has grown, and it's been fulfilled in Christ, and it's grown into something much more beautiful than they could have ever imagined. And again, it's not set aside, it's not thrown asunder, but it is fulfilled. So uh, as Christians, how do we fulfill, how do we do the law? We realize that we are under the law of love. As we see in Galatians 5. Jesus put it another way in Matthew 22. One of the Pharisees, who was a lawyer, was trying to catch him. They came to Jesus and asked, What is the greatest 
of the commandments, what is the greatest law. In verse 37, it says, And he said to him, Jesus said to the Pharisee, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is the greatest in the first commandment. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all, all of the law and the prophets. So even in the Old Testament, which we look at it now and it can seem rigid and cold, it can only be properly viewed and properly understood through the lens of love. So in the Old Testament, if you had love, you would fulfill the demands of the law naturally. Now, as Christians, if you are in Christ and you have love, you'll be fulfilling the commands of the law. So you don't have to work and strive to fulfill the law of commands. You can work and strive to love. And as a byproduct, you're going to fulfill these anyways. So if you love, you're going to take care of your neighbor. If we love, we'll take care of the poor in our city, which was the whole point of leaving the gleanings on the field so that the poor could come. Though they might not have land of their own, they could come and work be fed, as we see in Leviticus 23. So if you're in Christ, the spirit inside of you is never going to bring you to a place where you are going to disobey, disobey the law. The spirit of working in you is not going to have you make idols. The spirit in you is not going to have you covet. The spirit in you is not going to draw you towards idolatry. It's not going to bring you to a place where you profane the name of the Lord. So are we legalists? In a sense, yes, we are to the law of love. Not that it brings salvation, but we are bound to this law. So do you, do you see the massive, massive implications of this? You are under grace, but you are still bound to the law. Not the Mosaic law, which was fulfilled in Christ, but the law of love. And we'll see this next week, is that the law of love, it far exceeds any prescribed thing that the Old Testament law might have. So the grace of God that has been given to you, you have freedom and you have rest from trying to earn salvation, but it has also bound you and made you a slave to live a life that is not your own. You are free in Christ? Yes. You are Free from your own sin, but you are not free to do what you want. You are no longer a slave to sin, to homosexuality, or to gossip, to pornography, or to anger and bitterness. But you are slave to be obedient to the law of love. So friends, we see our main idea. We're filling it in here a little bit more. That We have seen that we are not as good as we think in verses 17 and 18. Christ is the one who has come to fulfill the law because we can't. We simply can't. Then in verse 19, we see that we are to be obedient to the law. And Christ expects us to be obedient to the law 
That is the law of love. It's the Mosaic law. It's been set aside. And finally, we're going to see true righteousness as we spend some time and just fix our gaze upon Jesus Christ. Verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. True righteousness has been the only way that men and women have ever been in relationship with God. And for centuries, ever since Genesis 3, for centuries now, this has left men hopeless. In our sinful state, we know that we sin. We know it, and we know that in this sin, we will be judged by a God who is holy and who is just. That is why there's, anywhere you go, there is a universal fear of sin, fear of death, because this sin has brought us to a place where we know we will be judged. Do you see now the, the folly of our own self-righteousness? As though you're going uh, to uh, get rid of this fear of death and you're going to take care of this sin? with your own body, with your own mind, with your own heart, the same body and mind and heart that leads you to sin, you're going to use these corrupted vessels, these corrupted instruments to, to go and please God? To somehow, not just do one or two or three good things, but to atone for all of the evil that you have done? It's utter foolishness. It's folly. And just when our guilty conscience thinks that it could not get any worse, Christ raises the bar. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So how is it possible that you could be more righteous than the scribes, more righteous than the Pharisees. There's only one way, my friends. It's, it's not in you, but it's in Christ. And try all you want. Go ahead, but try all you want. You will certainly fall short of others who have fallen short of the glory of God. Yet in Christ, you have true righteousness. 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, Because of Him, that is God the Father, you are in Jesus Christ, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification, redemption, so that it is written that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. That is, Christ is our righteousness, putting aside your self-righteousness. We also see in 1 Peter, for Christ has suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. And we have more. Romans 5. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness 
reign in life through that one man, Jesus, Jesus Christ. Finally, 2 Corinthians 5.21, you know it. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So it is in Christ and in Christ alone that you are righteous. It is in Christ alone that you will be able to go into the kingdom of heaven. It is not in your own, your own sin as you're, you're, you're going to be able to somehow atone for that. No, no, my friend, it's not in that. It's not in your striving. It's not in your works. It is in coming to Christ and believing in Him that His righteousness and His fulfilling the just demands of the law might be accomplished in you as well. So when God the Father looks at you, He sees one who is righteous, and He loves you as though He loves His Son. That is the beauty of the Gospel. So friends, as we close, we see you are not as good as you think you are. Thankfully, we're not. It's easy for those who realize that they're wretched sinners to come to God. But if you think you're self-righteous, if you think you can do it, well, then you have no need of Jesus Christ. You can do it in and of yourselves. But the wretched sinner that realizes, I have nothing but grace and grace alone. They are the ones who have righteousness, true righteousness in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we long to be with you and we thank you for sending your Son that we can set aside our pride and our self-righteousness and all of our works, and we can set aside our guilt as well. And we can come to You with unmitigated access. We can come back to You, God. I pray that You would keep us until that day. And our faith will be sight, God. Could you keep us until that day? Amen.